0: thank you
1: i'm recording now then okay all right so um oh this is yeah this is for hollywood's haunted so yeah (laughs) welcome everyone to another episode of hollywood's haunted the podcast today we have the wonderful Teresa. hey coming in from california and yeah. me, Tia, here in uh, fabulous Las Vegas. The Ooh. other, the other Hollywood, the extended version yeah. for extended Hollywood. Um, That's true. Uh, I did hear that possibly there are some celebrities who are thinking of making a movie studio out here.
0: Um, oh wow which
1: would be interesting i did hear nicholas cage was thinking about that for a while oh really i talk about this in the last episode i feel like i might have but nicholas cage was thinking about it for a while and funding fell through um from the city because the city decided to fund um what's his name the tesla guy um oh elon musk musk elon musk yeah. yeah And his uh, underground Tesla tunnel um, that is very strange. I don't understand (laughs) it. So there's this (laughs) underground tunnel here um, that basically takes you from one end of the convention center to the other end of the convention center Mm -hmm. um, because it is big. Um, And when we did NAB show, um, when we went to represent the podcast at NAB show,
0: Oh yeah. At the convention
1: center, we were able to ride it, but it seemed mm-hmm. like more um more than necessary, more dangerous than necessary. So basically mm-hmm. there are Teslas underground that take that go through this strange like Matterhorn like uh <laughs> bobsledding tunnel, <laughs> you know. Oh wow Takes you through this weird underground tunnel from one end of the convention center to the other, yeah. and um, you know it's very strange. Like, why would they not build an underground subway? Why do they need to be Tesla cars? Why do we yeah. they need to be individual cars with drivers that are not on some set track? You know, like <laughs> yeah. one one false move and you could crash in in yeah. there. You know as opposed to like a train is going to have a schedule and like a set track and you know, Mm -hmm. it was just bizarre. Um, I mean, I didn't mind it. I thought it was kind of cool. Um, In retrospect, thinking about how dangerous and kind of scary it is to be underground in a car um, with a driver driving down this narrow path, um, (laughs) maybe won't do it again. I don't know. Um, I also don't know like, okay like why mm-hmm. i mean it was helpful to get from one end of the convention center to the other especially when we were like running late to like a speaker we wanted to see you know that was kind of cool yeah. but it seemed excessive for no reason so right. anyways i digress um maybe we'll get <laughs> a movie studio in the future i don't know um yeah well yeah there's hope in uh, <laughs> So anyways, so today's episode, we will be touching on the very, um, what's the word? (laughs) Interesting. Yeah. To say the the least. The very, so interesting, I guess, would be it extravagant (laughs) over the top. um, Yes. Over the top, I think. Over Uh, the top
0: is good. Yes. Yeah.
1: So, uh, Joan Crawford was what we're going to be talking about today, and a couple different aspects of her. I'm going to be talking about Mommy Dearest, which uh, most people probably know of Joan Crawford from uh, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane or Faye yeah. Dunaway's portrayal of mm-hmm. Joan Crawford in Mommy Dearest. Um, Love. Which may or may not be fully accurate of yeah. <laughs> uh, her. It is very biased, and yes. um, <laughs> you know, I don't know exactly how I feel. Um, I have read "Mommy Dearest," so, and we'll get into how I feel about it. I have multiple feelings, um, you know. <laughs> yeah, uh, and you'll be talking about her feud with Benita. yes, yes, her
0: huge feud. Benita. Career long um, rivalry. It's crazy. Yes. Yeah. How can you yeah. imagine such a thing? Only in Hollywood, though. Yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, I hold a lot of grudges. So, you know, if. <laughs> uh, yeah. I would totally have a career-long feud with someone. I would be petty. I would be that petty. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, you you, know, you said it, petty, with a capital P, know. these ladies. Yes. <laughs> There's a few people I could think of who
1: have wronged me that if I got the opportunity to uh, inconvenience them, I would. You know? Yes. yes. Um, probably wouldn't do anything like, you know, that detrimental. But if I could like, you know, yeah. wildly inconvenience them.
0: Right. You know,
1: I would do that.
0: So <laughs> I haven't done yes. anything
1: petty recently and I'm really due for like something petty. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I probably shouldn't say. No, I did do something petty the other day, but I'm not gonna say so because it's gonna incriminate me uh, right so
0: that to myself. Uh, <laughs> yeah there you go <laughs> but
2: mm.
1: yeah uh who i think i should go first because mine kind of starts uh, yeah
0: before. i think you yeah no i think you probably should too yeah i mean it's it just kind of yeah i think it makes more sense maybe because mm-hmm. If I talked about their feud, their rivalry, it might be kind of like backpedaling a bit if you talked about. Yeah. So you should go. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Plus, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk a little bit about who Joan Crawford is for those of you who do not know. Oh, yeah. Uh, no, maybe. Maybe you don't definitely. know. They um, need to know. <laughs> I, I definitely didn't know who she was for the longest time, although I had seen Mommy Dearest uh, when yeah. I was young you know
0: oh my um, how young like, were you um
1: i probably was like 10 or 11 when oh. i saw this movie what? so That's it did come so out in dumb. like 81 um yeah and i remember being like very triggered by it yeah you know? um Oh I yeah. I mentioned in the last episode like you know i did have like a strict parent you know yeah Uh, growing up, you know, and I would never say that what my mom did, like, uh, you know, my mom was not a mommy dearest, like, at all, but there was times where, like, I was strictly punished, and, you know, um, probably rightfully so, and from my point of view (laughs) as a kid, you Mm know, being punished is just very scary, (laughs) you know, Yeah, and sometimes, you know, when parents have emotional outbursts, you know, cause they're people too, you know, yeah. sometimes they take it out on their children, you know, yeah. and, uh, so, you know, watching <laughs> that as a kid, I was just like, oh, that's so terrifying. You know, that's how I felt when I was being punished. But I think, you know, as a child, I kind of saw that more you know, through child eyes and could relate to Christina Crawford. Now as an adult, I didn't really relate to her as much reading the book as an adult because I just read it very recently. And as an adult, I have much more understanding of my parents' struggles in raising me, you know, and I can have a little more perspective in that. Yeah. And appreciate the strictness that I had growing up, which was only when I was younger. My parents were, my mom was very strict with me, I felt, when I was in elementary school. But I felt like that extremely loosened up more and more as I got older. And now it's like we have a great relationship, you know, and everything. So that's just my perspective of that, you know, Mm -hmm. having had you know um you know things things i related that happened in the book i'll get into that i guess maybe well i'll just mention it like being told like you have to eat this you you know you have to yeah. finish what's on your plate now in the book oh, like and in the movie they took it to a very extreme situation you know yeah but you know i do remember that happening to me as a kid and i think as a kid w- watching the movie Seeing that happen was like, oh, that's how I felt, you know, Yeah. as a kid. But now as an adult, I'm like, well, you know, that was kind of very common for parents to do at the time. Like, it's less common now that kind of mm-hmm. parents kind of know a bit better, you know, and there's more resources yeah. that, uh, you know, finishing everything on your plate or
0: oh, having that yeah.
1: kind of militant sort of strictness my mom wasn't really militant but you know there was expectations on my behavior (laughs) you know (laughs) which is you know 100% a good thing it definitely helped me in theater later on in my life Um, which I guess I'll talk about I'll get to that too (laughs) in a bit anyway so those of you who don't know Mommy Dearest is a memoir and expose Um, written by Christina Crawford. Uh, She is the adopted daughter of actress Joan Crawford. Mm -hmm. Um, Oh, and I should say I got a lot of my information from uh, Wikipedia, The Hollywood Reporter, as well as the book Mommy Dearest by Christina Crawford. Um, So the, the book Mommy Dearest was published in 1978, and it had a lot of controversy um, when it came out because of how the portrayal of Joan Crawford, who is Christina Crawford's adopted mother, of her being quite um, unbalanced, uh, an alcoholic, and borderline, well, she, she is portrayed in the book to be abusive In the movie, they make her out to be physically abusive, but in the book, not quite so much physically abusive as much as she is narcissistic and emotionally abusive, Mm
2: -hmm. you
1: know? So, but it is from the perspective of Christina Crawford. And most people did not have her same perspective. So a lot of people Mm -hmm. were very shocked and sometimes some of them were hurt when this book Mm -hmm. came out um because they had this idea that Joan Crawford was this nice beautiful talented you know generous person you know
2: Mm
1: -hmm. and uh may not have been you know they they may not have been excited to hear about the dark side of it However, even in the book, the books had many publications, even in the book, um, there were several times in the book where people, after the book came out, people contacted Christina Crawford and said, I witnessed, you know, this between you and your mom and I didn't know what to do at the time because Joan Crawford was so famous and I was nobody and you know, I feel bad that I didn't speak up at the time because I did see this emotional abuse go on. Yeah. So that part, that was very interesting in the book. Mm-hmm. So the, the book also was made into a movie in 1981, which uh, basically has also a lot of controversy when it came out. Christina Crawford did not feel that the book, uh, the movie... Rightfully po- portrayed the book accurately, and Faye mm. Dunaway was uh, very much um, trashed for her portrayal. People thought that Faye Dunaway was very over the top and a little bit too extreme in her uh, almost campy <laughs> and comical. Um, yeah, you know, which I kind of agree. Um, I mean,
0: yeah, a little bit. <laughs>
1: You know, um, the movie has definitely a cult following now. Oh yeah. So, so anyways, um, tell you a little bit about who Joan Crawford is, though, and why, uh, you know, why should we care? I guess <laughs> about her life.
0: Um, oh my God, Tia, if she just heard you say that. <laughs> yeah,
1: I know, right? Yeah, I'm um, just kidding. <laughs> So Joan Crawford, that is not her real name. She was born yep. uh, Lucille Faye LeSueur, March Can 23rd of 1900 and what? Yeah. Because <laughs> nobody knows what her real, uh, nobody knows what her real birthday or birth year even is.
2: Um, oh my God! Because
1: there was some uh, very um, weird circumstances with her birth. Um, her mother did not tell her that her biological father was her real father. And so they don't actually know when she was actually born or who her father is. And, you know, which is, you know, already, she's already off to a bad start, you know, <laughs> um, she was an American actress. Um, she was born in Texas. She was of Irish English, English, Dutch and French ancestry. So um, her father actually abandoned the family when um, Lucille was just 10 months old. And the family eventually left San Antonio, Texas to Abilene, Texas. And, um, oh no, he left to Abilene, Texas, um, reportedly working in construction. Now, um, her mother would become a sales lady and later on she would marry henry j casson in fort worth texas um which he is incorrectly listed as her second husband then when he is in fact the third um there's a lot of like not no like what is it inaccuracies
0: yeah um,
1: uh, in her past
0: so Mm -hmm. Sorry for that. Uh, (laughs) She should have been better about that.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So, Henry Casson, he ran uh, the Ramsey Opera House. He would have very talented performers come through. And um, little Lucille, whose nickname was Billy, would enjoy watching the vaudeville acts. um, And she thought Cassin was her actual father for the longest time, but it, it was not. It was actually this other guy, Lesur. Um So, yeah. Uh, <laughs> apparently, Cassin uh, allegedly began abusing her when she was 11, um, sexually abusing her. So, okay. She went to a Catholic girls' school. Uh, at one time, to escape piano lessons she leapt from the front porch of her home and cut her foot on a milk bottle she had three surgeries to repair the damage and for 18 months she was unable to attend elementary school or continue dance lessons um you know which probably caused her pain later on in her life which maybe also led to her drinking um this also makes sense because, I mean, with her being abused as a child, also Catholic schools were very um, strict and abusive.
0: Oh this all goodness. kind
1: of makes sense in building, you know, her character. Yeah. Um, she started as a dancer in uh, traveling theatrical companies before debuting on Broadway. Um, so her broadway debut was in a show called innocent eyes at the winter garden theater Mm. um and uh i thought this was pretty interesting uh to rid herself of her southwestern accent crawford tirelessly practiced dictation and elocution Uh, she Mm -hmm. said if i were to speak lines it would be a good idea, I thought, to read out loud myself, listen carefully to my voice quality and enunciation and try to learn uh, learn in that manner. Uh, I would lock myself in a room and read newspapers, magazines, and books out loud. At my elbow, I kept a dictionary. When I came to a word I did not know how to pronounce, I looked it up and repeated it correctly 15 times.
0: Yeah. So yeah.
1: kind of also starts to peer into her um obsessiveness and her wanting to be perfect um so she in 1922 prior to so prior to her debut on broadway though she did um attempt to uh she registered at Stevens college in columbia missouri uh giving her year of birth as 1906 which may or may not be true uh, she attended for a few months, but withdrew after she realized she was not ready for college um, because of her family's instability. Um, her She would never go past um, any, she would never attend any more college. But anyway, she got, after Broadway, she was signed to a motion picture contract with Metro Goldwyn and Mayer in 1925. And uh, initially frustrated by the size and quality of her parts, Crawford began campaigning a campaign of self-publicity and became nationally known as a flapper. She was like the it girl, too, of her time. Um, Mm -hmm. She was like the flapper, which was, if you don't know what a flapper is, it (laughs) was a lifestyle, a um, dress style, a, you know, I guess... I don't know what would be like the flapper of today,
0: you know, well, of today. Oh, yeah. Um,
1: well, like, you know, <laughs> I don't know how to explain it. Like, I'm trying to I think everything. Yeah, everything's kind of plastic surgery had, like, today. So. What's that? Uh, I, oh, what were you going to say?
0: Oh, no, I was just saying that I'm trying to think of a modern day equivalent um, but everything that's popular currently, like popular, popular is a lot of plastic surgery. So oh, I'm yeah. trying to think, yeah. I'm trying to think of, well, you know, some, they're rebellious. Like... Though. I was going to yeah. say, when you're talking about, um, when you're talking about Joan Crawford specifically, and, uh, you know, because I did, I was looking at some of the same background you were looking at, mm-hmm. and, I know that um F Scott Fitzgerald himself uh there were, I don't I don't remember where the quote was but you know he was saying oh, yeah. that he thought that Joan was one of the best flappers of the day. So if you can find that quote from him you could read it but um like yeah, he, no, he I just had was, that quote yeah. He was just very impressed with her. I remember that much and I was like thinking oh my god F Scott Fitzgerald you know
2: yeah. What better right. compliment
0: could you get about being a flapper? <laughs> so, Let me, I'm going to get that quote right now.
1: And Pat will edit yeah. out this long pause right here. <laughs> uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald wrote, Joan Crawford is doubtless the best example of the flapper. The girl you see in smart nightclubs. Gowned to the apex of sophistication, dancing deliciously, laughing a great deal with wide hurt eyes, young things with a talent for for living. So, yeah, Um, Mm -hmm. I guess like, I don't know, they were, yeah, the rebellious, you know, youths of their time. So I guess, you know, I don't know, hipsters or punks or whatever, you know, is the fad at the time that's what the flappers were short hair. Um, yeah. You know, they didn't wear corsets anymore. They would flatten their chest. They weren't trying to have these Gibbs. It was like the opposite of the Gibson girl. Um, right. Look at the time. So
0: anyway, that would have been hard for me. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. Same.
1: same. Yeah. Right. Um, (laughs) So uh and so she became nationally known as a flapper by the end of the nineteen twenties, the nineteen thirties, Crawford's famed rivaled MGM colleagues, Norma Shear and Greta Gar- Garbo. Um mm-hmm. Crawford's famed rivaled Oh, it right oh, okay, sorry. That doesn't make any sense. Um I'm just gonna have to edit that again. Uh, In the 30s, Crawford's fame rivaled MGM colleagues Norma Shear and Greta Garbo. Crawford often played hardworking young women who find romance and financial success. These rags to riches stories were well-received by Depression-era audiences and were popular with women. Crawford became one of Hollywood's most prominent movie stars and one of the highest paid women in the United States, but her films began losing money, and by the end of the 30s, she was labeled box office poison. Mm-hmm. Dun, dun, dun. Right? Mm-hmm. Um. So, yeah, I mean, that's Hollywood, though, you know? Like, yeah. your career's gonna have a lot of ups and downs, and, you know... What works in one era, you know, and is fashionable in one era will maybe die out very quickly, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, uh, after 18 years, Crawford's contract with MGM terminated uh, by mutual consent on June 29th, 1943. In lieu of the last film remaining under her contract, MGM bought her out for $100,000. And for five hundred thousand dollars, Crawford signed with Warner Brothers for a three movie deal, and was placed on payroll in July of nineteen forty three. So her turnaround was very quick there. Oh, but yeah. I could see how that could be scary at the time. Yeah. So you know. Yeah. Uh. So, anyways, around this time too is when she adopts her first children, um, which was Christina and Christopher number one. Um, Later, she would, that baby would be uh, not hers um, and taken back by its mom. And then she would adopt Christopher number two, like in this same time period of her going from MGM to Warner Brothers. Wow. Um, I didn't realize so that.
0: Yeah.
1: Later in her life, though, after the Warner Brothers, she, uh, you know, after she did her three movies, she married uh, Alfred Steele at the Flamingo Hotel in Las Vegas,
0: oh, where I am right Flamingo.
1: now. And um, she had met him at a party in 1954. Um, At that time, Steele had become president of Pepsi Cola. So that was her other claim to fame was being like the face of Pepsi Cola uh, later on in her life. Uh, She was later named chairman of the board and CEO of Pepsi Cola. And she traveled extensively on the behalf of uh, Pepsi, um, even after um, he passed away. So he basically took over where he had left off. Mm -hmm. So that's okay. So during this time is basically when Christina was with Joan. So backtracking a little bit, Christina Crawford was born in Los Angeles, California in 1939 to an unmarried teen or so she was told. And, um, according to her personal interview with Larry King, her father was unmarried to another woman and supposedly in the Navy. Her mother, uh, her mother was no, her father was married to another woman and supposedly in the Navy. Her father was unmarried. So Crawford, uh, Christina Crawford, was adopted from a baby broker in Nevada because Joan was formally denied an adoption by social services for being an unfit candidate in California in 1940, basically because she was a single mother. Mm -hmm. Um, Christina Crawford's adoption story is very fishy. There is no like official birth certificate or like official adoption for her. And it was very fishy so this story of her father being in the navy and all of that like christina definitely questions that in the book and has found a lot of difficulty actually like researching that and finding where she actually came from and this whole trip to nevada was very suspicious because right after their trip to nevada joan crawford drove to miami in their car during the time where gas was very expensive and there was a gas shortage and Mm -hmm. also uh, just a woman and her child drove to Miami and to visit one of her mob friends and Christina kind of makes the connection that this mob friend had something to do with her being able to adopt this child in Nevada. Oh wow. Um, Because... Uh, as you might know, the mob mm-hmm. has, uh, you know, thumbs and a couple pies here in yeah. Vegas. Um, so there is some suspicion in that. Uh, Christina was one of five children that were adopted by Joan. Her siblings were Christopher, who was adopted in 1943. Um, however, okay, so Christopher number two is the Christopher you'll hear about. In 1942, the year earlier, uh, Joan had adopted another boy named Christopher, but he was ended up being reclaimed by his birth mother when she found out, you know, that where he was and that he was put up for adoption. She wanted her kid back, which led me to think that some of these that it was just very suspicious. And it was not uncommon at the time for um, houses that helped... (coughs) unwed teens you know uh give birth they were like the midwives to be kidnapping and selling children um so that is something that christina kind of like alludes to but never actually says in the book is that these circumstances were suspicious um christina was originally named joan jr but she eventually was named christina and then her second kid, Christopher, she named after the first Christopher. She just named the new kid. Oh, you're the new Christopher. Which kind of also shows how Joan saw these kids as pawns in the great yeah. scheme of things. She would later uh, adopt twin girls, Catherine and Cynthia um, later on. So, uh so Christina, uh you know, she um so I don't know where I go where I should go with this. Okay, so <laughs> um yeah, she has this kid adopted under, you know, mysterious circumstances. Um Christina ends up, you know, growing up in this household that was pretty abusive um and later she writes um, you know, a book about it. So, uh I'll just go right into basically what the book says and we're we'll just um yeah go from there so
2: <laughs> see
1: some of the details from the book okay so uh when joan crawford first adopted christina and christopher they were named joan jr and philip terry jr okay yeah i said that and that um he was named after his adopted father oh yeah joan crawford married several people uh but after crawford's third marriage fell apart she renamed her children so yeah, mm-hmm. she just sees them as things that they the autonomy over these kids is just like. Ugh. Anyways, yeah. yeah. So uh, here's another. Oh, this this part's pretty. Um. So, actually, so I'll comment a little bit on their first togetherness of uh the. I don't know what I'm saying. So um their relationship at first was like very much Christina was joined at the hip of her mom. And I think it was this feeling of this shiny new toy, this like, mm-hmm. I just got a new puppy. I'm going to show yeah, it yeah. off. And she dotes on her daughter, but things start to unravel here and there. And Joan's true colors kind of start to come out. The... Mm-hmm most prominent thing that is portrayed in the book and in the movie in the movie this wire hanger scene is actually the combination of three different events um. of that happened in the book so in the movie they make it more intense like it's this extreme situation but this was kind of the combination of three different things however um In the book, Christina does say that her mom hated wire hangers. In the middle of the night, her mother finds a wire hanger in her room that was left over in her closet that was left over from her dry cleaning. And she knew her mom hated wire hangers and just didn't think to get rid of it and didn't think it was a big deal at the time. There's a lot of that happening in the book where she is like, I didn't think it was that big of a deal. But apparently it was, you know, um, which is interesting. I want to talk about this a little later, too. It's interesting because I just finished reading. I'm glad my mom died by uh, Jeanette McCurdy. Um, I purposely read that right after this book, because I was like, that's, you know kind of in the same air whereas you know in mommy dearest christina crawford's constantly being like it's not that big of a deal i just didn't i didn't think it was that big of a deal why is she making the big deal and um whereas jeanette mccurdy when her mother kind of goes off on weird tirades over things that are little she says to herself you know she's right i won't do that again you know And it just kind of shows how kids kind of adapt to their parents and adapt their emotions to you know tiptoe around their parents so anyways i felt that a lot in the book so her mom hates wire hangers and basically goes on a tirade saying no wire hangers no wire hangers uh and beats her and hits her in the ears now later on christina crawford did come out and say that the movie portrayed her being beaten with a wire hanger and that never happened, but her mom was physically abusive to her several times. Um, Christina had a favorite dress until she provoked her mother into shredding it. Um, And Joan Crawford made Christina wear the dress for a week in order to humiliate her. Um, So she makes her kid wear this dress that she ripped up for a week and the dress barely covers her. And all of the, she tells Christina, if anyone asks, you know, about the dress and why you're wearing that, that you're gonna tell them that I'm, you know, I'm a bad kid and I don't listen to my mother. But luckily at this point she's, um, she's not going to school publicly or she's home for like a vacation. And luckily, all of the servants in the house knew what was going on, and they just they knew not to ask her about it. And she was like, kind of relieved that they just they never ask about it. Um, but it's pretty horrible. Um,
2: yeah.
1: So Crawford uh, Joan Crawford was also prone to night raids in which she would wake the children up drunk and make them clean messes that they hadn't necessarily made uh, for hours on end.
0: Um, she. Crazy.
1: Yeah, she would make them clean and there were times where she there was one time where she went into the garden and she just cut up all the rose bushes and then made Christina clean it up, clean up all of the trimmings and everything in like the middle of the night. And when the gardener got there the next day, he just quit. He was done with that. Oh you my know.
2: God.
1: Um yeah. Uh, Christina says that she was once starved for days when she refused to eat an undercooked steak. That was still bloody uh, in a bid, all in a bid for her mother to further control her. So yes, that is another thing that happened. So that's what I was commenting on before is that like my parents would be like, you need to finish your whole plate, you know, Mm. and eat all your food and sometimes be very strict about that. You know, I mean, it was probably a few occasions that I remember, you know,
0: um,
1: but, but in this book, so basically Christina hates rare meat, but her mother keeps making her eat these rare steaks. And it's like a three day thing, like a standoff between the two where her mother will not let her leave the dinner table. And at night, she puts a steak in the in the fridge. And then in the next day, she makes Christina sit down at the dinner table and uh, sp- spend all day looking at the steak. And by like the third day, the steak is like moldy and disgusting. Uh, she hasn't eaten in like three days. Um, Yeah, it was pretty horrible.
0: Got to be uh, fucking kidding me. That's disgusting, man. Pretty awful. Oh my- uh, She That's ended up not...
1: Eating it, I believe, in the end, and the mother just gave in. But it, yeah.
0: Thank God um, for that. Oh my God. Ugh.
1: Supposedly, Joan tied Christopher to the bed in this sort of device so he wouldn't get out of bed at night. Um, they do portray that in the movie. Uh, that part mm. I read it uh, was very weird that she would only do that to one of her children so yeah um um, Ah. at christmas the children were photographed as being gifted tons of items but then they were allowed to choose one thing to keep while the rest were given away to charity and (laughs) uh, or saved to be regifted to other kids throughout the year um Mm. as birthday gifts so this is a thing where i was kind of like maybe i don't fully agree with um Christina Crawford on this they so they would be given tons and tons of presents because of you know Joan Crawford's fans but the mother would only let them keep a few and then the rest were given away and Mm -hmm. you know they Christina always says like how very little she was given you know Mm -hmm. and she was given basically necessities and never ever was she given anything extra and she's mm. very bitter about this yeah. you know and i'm like on the fence about it because i'm like you know i know that joan crawford is just trying to teach you to be appreciative of your things and not spoil you it was pretty extreme though it yeah. definitely was um and yeah. it, as a kid you don't understand well these are my presents why are they given away You know, and it was, it had the opposite effect because Christina always, I hate to use the word entitled, but throughout the book, I always, I kept getting that feeling of she felt entitled to things because of Mm. who her mother is and her mother denied her these things. Yeah. And sometimes it was extreme and she was in the right. And sometimes I felt like, well, honey, (laughs) you know, like, (laughs) You know, yeah. you're not necessarily entitled to your mother's money. You are entitled to the necessities, but yeah, um, you know, especially once you reach a certain age, you're not entitled yeah. to anything from your parents. But so, yeah, um, with these true. Christmas presents, so Joan Crawford obsessed over the thank you letters, and Christina Crawford had to write Chris uh, thank you letters to everyone who gave these presents, even the ones that she wasn't keeping. And the mom would go over those um, letters and uh, meticulously edit them and make her rewrite them. And it would be like days, sometimes weeks, that it would take her to finish these letters writing all day and all night. Um, Pretty crazy stuff. Even uh, later in her life, uh, they have an argument over Christmas letters and Joan Crawford actually ends up pulling Christina out of the school that she is and makes her go to this Catholic school and takes her away from, you know, her friends and these two teachers, the two people who ran the school, um, who were basically her like second parents, you know, her real parents who raised her and looked after her and take her away and make her go to this Catholic school as a punishment um, because she didn't like write her Christmas thank you letters. Um, And later on, Joan Crawford says that Christina was expelled, you know, which is a flat out lie. So, um, so, But anyways, that's later on. But when Christina (laughs) was 13 years old, she supposedly suffered one final brutal beating from her mother in which she thought she was going to be choked out. Uh, Christina says, that was the last time we had physical violence because I knew that if that happened again, I would do everything in my power to protect myself. Um, She told that on Larry King. This part of the book infuriated me because this is the one time that social services uh, was actually called. Um, And social services shows up to the house, talks to Joan, talks to the people in the house, you know, the servants, and talks to Christina and sees Christina beaten up. And social services just tells her, you know, as she has like a bloody nose, tells her oh well just try to get along with your mother you know because of who Joan Crawford is and he knows that he he doesn't want to start this big controversy you know and yeah how powerful Joan Crawford is and it just the the system hopefully is better than that now I know it is still messed up you know and Mm. there is still has problems but hopefully you know, it's just made me so mad anyways yeah. um, uh, Christina wrote that when she was fifteen years old, she was so depressed from her mother's treatment towards her that she tried to kill herself at boarding school by overdosing at pill on pills. She claimed her mother never contacted her or addressed the situation afterwards um. Although Christina never flat out accused her mother of killing her fourth husband, Steele, she had pointed to the fact that the healthy man suspiciously fell down the stairs only three years after they had been married. Oh, yeah, that's uh, another thing. Um, but yeah, there, I mean, there was a lot in the book. And so later on in Christina's life, she, after she finishes school, And everything. She finds this like love of theater at school. She's in this like production of the Mikado where she plays um, the villain and she's incredibly good. And she decides that she wants to do become an actor, Um, even though um, her mother is like not very supportive of it and basically is very critical of it. She decides to go in her mother and to follow in her mother's footsteps and become an actress. And. That's the part of the book where I stopped kind of being on Christina Crawford's side. Even though she is allowed to do whatever she wants and be whatever she wants, if you're, like, wanting to separate yourself from your mother, like, you maybe probably don't – I mean, you probably don't want to go into the same career as her. Mm -hmm. And this led to, you know, a lot of other problems, you know. Yeah. So, Mm -hmm. uh, where – they were in the same career path and basically Joan, you know, as you'll probably get into, does not like, um, competition, um, let alone from a (laughs) younger Crawford, you know? Yeah. So Christina Crawford appeared in Summerstock theater, including a production of Splendor in the Grass she also acted in a number of off Broadway productions, including uh, In Color on Sundays. She appeared in uh, At Christmas Time, 1955, and The Dark of the Moon at the Fred Miller Theater in Milwaukee. She does really well for herself. She struggles through all of this. Her mother barely gives her money to go to college. And um, it's. Through all this, Christina Crawford doesn't understand why her mom isn't giving her any more money and barely giving her allowance. And this part, I was also like, honey, just get a job, you know. Um, (laughs) But that's also just from my perspective. I grew up with parents who provided as much as they could for me. And at one point, they told me, we can't provide for you anymore. And I fully understood, you know, Granted my parents aren't movie stars, you know? Um
0: <laughs> yeah. So probably hits a little um, different. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, yeah, who knows, right? <laughs> but
1: also, um Chris Christina also goes, oh, I wish I would have put the school that she went to down here.
0: What her acting um, school? Yeah. Or- yeah. Didn't... Well, actually, I don't remember. Like, I remember the scene from Mommy Dearest where they show her where she's older, the actress. But, like, I don't remember where she was, though. Right
1: now. Carnegie Mellon. Oh, School okay. Drama, oh, see, well, that's went. big.
0: Yeah. In yeah. Ohio,
1: right? Yeah. Um. So, yeah, she she went to Carnegie and she talked a lot about how um, strict they were and she talks about learning dance from Martha Graham and she oh, didn't yeah. like Martha Graham because Martha Graham was so particular in everything um yeah, i imagine <laughs> and having gone to theater school and i know you'll relate it yeah. is borderline abusive it really is of course is. it is
0: it is people but it's out, like, oh, it is you
1: know, <laughs> It's that way for a reason Yeah, because you kind of have to be broken down, you know. And I felt like having such a strict upbringing really prepared me for when I went to theater school. You know. Yeah. Um, It's hard. And being disciplined. I was disciplined. I was well behaved. I took it seriously. And I feel like Christina Crawford wasn't she, she was that. And at times she wasn't at times she was like, well, I just don't want to do this, you know? And so I went back and forth with agreeing with her, you know, on that. And then, you know, it's, I mean, that's, you know, it's her perspective and it's, it's a book. So, you know, (laughs) (laughs) um, so, anyways she's in wild in the country with elvis presley she does other movies on and on and um basically uh at one point she does this play in okay so in october of 1965 she appeared in neil simon's barefoot in the park with myrna Loy, who was a friend of her mother uh and Myrna Loy, from the get-go, is not about Christina Crawford. She, no. uh, so Myrna Loy just hates her and hates and hates the way she acts, hates, you know, her yeah. the way she talks. Um, Myrna Loy has a very distinct way of sounding. She's very mid-Atlantic and she didn't like... Um, Christina Crawford's you know normal way of speaking um, <laughs> basically yeah. I don't know what happened but there was very suspicious circumstances and one day Christina Crawford is just fired off of set Wow. Um, probably because Myrna Loy was not happy with her being there and they could be hmm. because Myrna Loy was friends with Joan Crawford it could be something else you know um but there were several times too where christina wanted to work in a movie or wanted to work at a certain studio and joan crawford basically would make some phone calls and ruin that opportunity for her um yeah so Uh, There was even one point where Joan basically said to this one director, like, I'm not going to do your movie next year because you hired Christina right now and dropped out. And so Christina ends up being blacklisted at a lot of places. Um, Oh my
0: god. But
1: then there's like a switch at one point, and then Joan Crawford just starts helping her out. It's very weird. Like
0: yeah, their like- relationship <laughs>
1: later on in their life ends up becoming yeah. very good. Mm. But it's like a weird codependent relationship oh, yeah. later on in their life. And Joan sure. ends up going to live with Christina at one point. Um and it's a lot of – Christina never, ever actually confronts her mom about her feelings towards her childhood and yeah. ne- never really says so to her face, even when they were, like, living together. Um, mm-hmm. But, but yeah, okay, here's another weird thing that happened. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, she ends up getting this role uh, mm-hmm. on this soap opera – Uh, called The Secret Storm Mm. Uh, and so while she's on this show she ends up becoming very ill and she finds out that she actually has cancer and Mm. that she needs surgery and Christina ends up holding off for as long as she can to get surgery but ends up collapsing on set And while Christina is in pain and drugged up, basically the director of the show tells her, your mom has offered to fill in for your role on the soap opera in your absence. And so in her 50s, Joan Crawford plays Christina's role of a 29-year-old while on, on Secret Storm, while she's in the hospital, And Christina really had no say because she's like drugged up and in surgery. And, you know, um, the studio believes that this was going to be incredible ratings. And it ends up being like a total disaster because Joan Crawford shows up to the set drunk. She can no longer, you know do the long hours she's not cut out for doing soap operas which is a very quick turnaround like you need to do it in one take and she ends up doing multiple takes and causing things to um go uh longer you know shoots go longer than they can and um she brings her assistant on set and you know uh basically Uh, Her assistant is like super rude to everybody. And so when Christina gets better and comes back to set, there's like this like awkwardness and no one will tell her what happened while on set. And then pretty much pretty quickly they uh, write her off the show, you Mm -hmm. know, and she finds out, you know, a bit later what had happened and right around this time after the show, Christina Crawford decides that she's just not going to do acting (laughs) anymore, you know, and she's pretty much had it, and so, but this is also around the time where Joan Crawford's health starts to deteriorate, Um, you know, she does do the movie Whatever Happened to Baby Jane um, with Betty Davis, yeah, um, which I believe you're going to talk about. She yeah. does like one or two more movies. Um, she's in this horrible movie called Trogue or Trog, <laughs> 1970. I know. I was trying to um, figure out how
0: to pronounce that. So yeah, <laughs> that Christina
1: Crawford basically says should go should be forgotten. <laughs>
0: you know be Uh-oh, forgotten and it. I know that's like yeah. the best slash worst kind of review yeah yeah <laughs> um, so on um, on May 6,
1: 1977 Joan Crawford gives away her shih tzu because she was too weak to continue to care for her dog oh. and Joan Crawford ends up Uh, She passes away on May 10th, 1977 in her apartment in Lenox Hill, New York. Mm. And Joan Crawford's last words uh, before she passed away of a heart attack are probably the best famous last words that I've ever, ever heard. (laughs) Joan Crawford, as, as her housekeeper is praying over her to say, and her housekeeper says, God help you. Joan Crawford's last words are, damn it, don't you dare ask God to help me.
0: Oh, man. (laughs) Shit.
1: (laughs) Even to the end, Joan Crawford does not need help from no one.
0: Well, Um, that was always true. That's for sure. Yeah.
1: (laughs) um, Wow. So, um, A funeral is held at Campbell Funeral Home, New York, on May 13th, 1977, in her will, which was signed on October 28th, 1976, and this is after her relationship with Christina is mended, and she's living with Christina, and they have a happy, okay relationship. Mm. Uh, Joan Crawford bequeathed to her two youngest, Cindy and Kathy... $77,000 $77,000 uh, $77, each from her $2 million estate. And she explicitly disinherited the two eldest, Christina and Christopher. Jesus. And quote, says in her will, It is my intention to make no. Pre- pre- uh, sorry. And quote, says in her will, it is my intention to make no provision herein for my son Christopher or my daughter Christina for reasons which are well known to them.
0: Fucking cold. Yeah. <laughs>
1: like uh. So both of them challenge the will. They do receive a uh fifty-five thousand dollar settlement. Um, she bequeaths nothing to anybody else. She gives some money to um uh, the Charities, uh, the Motion Picture and Television, co- County House and Hospital, American Cancer Society, Muscular Dystrophy Association, the American Heart Association, and the wit- wilt-lick? wiltlick School <laughs> oh. for Boys. Oh. <laughs> um, so she gives money to Charity and the two twins, her two youngest twins, Um, but nothing to Christopher or Christina for reasons that are well known to them. Oh, Um, I'm sure they do know those reasons not. So, (laughs) two years after, or no, a year after her mother's death, um, the book Mommy Dearest comes out. And Mm. yes, She basically accuses her mom of being cruel, violent, neglectful, and a deceitful, narcissistic fraud. A year after her mother's death, Christina Crawford publishes her book, Mommy Dearest. And the book accused her mother of being cruel, violent, neglectful, and deceitful a deceitful, narcissistic fraud who adopted her children only for wealth and fame after she had been labeled box office poisoning. Poison, following her firing of from MGM Studios. So, in 1981, the movie comes out, Mommy Dearest, starring Faye Dunaway as Joan Crawford, and Mara Boyd uh, as very young Christina. And um, the film critically panned Dunaway's performance and Frank Perry's direction and uh, failed at the box office from a ten million dollar budget. The film basically was box office failure. I mean, I like the film, but it's it's over the top, and you know,
0: definitely over the top. There's yeah.
1: no, um, what is it? There's no purpose <laughs> to the film <laughs> other than.
0: Well- terror and trauma i guess yeah it's kind of a horror movie really like it really is like with how kind of terrifying it is to watch Mm -hmm. i mean me like coming to horror as a fan kind of late in the game like because i was always too scared before (laughs) now yeah it is it's really horrifying to watch it like thinking about it you know but um why was it created i don't know Mm -hmm. like you said we didn't live that reality. We're not sure. It's kind of hearsay also. But at the same time, who knows? I mean, well, if, if Christina says those were not accurate portrayals, well, hopefully they're not. Because that was truly yeah. horrifying in the movie. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um,
1: yeah. She uh, basically she denounced the film as grotesque and a work of fiction. Okay, uh, Christina well. has repeatedly stated that the film is highly inaccurate and that the portrayal of her mother in the film is nothing like the real Joan Crawford, specifically citing that her mother never chopped down a tree with an axe. Oh,
2: though,
1: Jesus. Uh, yeah. In the book, she cut down, cut up rose bushes. That's true. So with a wire kind,
0: kind of simul- similar, right? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well. Um, well. <laughs> having... Having read the book, or well, I listened to it on Audible. Audible, please um, sponsor us. Um, (laughs) Having listened to it on Audible, you know, I did feel like the character of Joan was very different than the character of Joan in the movie. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And I feel like some key scenes were kept out of the movie. Like, they kind of gloss over their... You know where they kind of make up and they kind of have a relationship later on in the book, which I think is important. Yeah, um, to talk about and also the psychological effects that had on Christina.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But, um, but also, anyways, so <laughs> no, you're
0: in right. 1998,
1: mm-hmm. uh, Kathy and um, Kathy Crawford who uh, was one of the two, one of the twins. Um, and may, may I say the the twins, even in the book, as we go, you can tell that the twins really aren't witnessing a lot of the treatment that Christina and Christopher went through. And hmm. Joan's relationship to the twins was very different, hmm. you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and christina and christopher almost end up becoming scapegoats for everything and the twins are doted on so kathy ends up in 1998 filing a lawsuit against christina crawford for defamation of character she stated that during the 20th anniversary book tour of mommy dearest christina publicly claimed to interviewers that uh, her and her twin sister, Cynthia, were not biological sisters and that their adoption was never legal. Um, so she stated that claim by Christina, uh was true and uh, attached copies of the twin, gr- or was not true. And she uh, had copies of the um, her birth certificates, Um, With the documentation of the lawsuit. But the lawsuit later settled out of court for $5,000. So basically, the twins do not have a good relationship with Christina either.
2: Um, Mm.
1: But Christina Crawford would go on and she published other books. um, Including um, Black Widow. Uh, No Safe Place and Daughters of the Inquisition. Um, So there's a few other books that she has published and as far as I know, she has not really gone back into acting. Um, But yeah, that's a little bit about Mommy Dearest. Um, Mm -hmm. I was definitely not always agreeing with Christina Crawford's you know, right to be as um, is indignant, I guess, is the word, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know, yeah. I felt like there were several times towards the end of the book that I was like, get over it, you know, get over this, mm-hmm. but that's also me coming from right. another perspective. And, right. you know, that's me right. wanting her, you know, I don't know just she is almost as obsessive as her mother is obsessive
0: i'm sure you know? because that's what like, happens yeah yeah Yeah. and it's
1: also interesting i mean it's kind of obvious that a lot of this that jones character came from her growing up poor you yeah. know and being afraid that she was going to lose everything at any minute yeah so yeah That was pretty interesting. Definitely. Um, So yeah. And I just finished I'm Glad My Mom Died by Jeanette Mm -hmm. McCurdy. And that is so similar of a story, you know. And Mm -hmm. it is very clear that it's her grandmother's, you know, grandmother's narcissism. Being passed down to her mother, to lead her mother to be obsessive and a hoarder and abusive, and absolutely generational
0: know. curses, right? Yeah,
1: yeah. and that—I mean—that was—I would suggest reading that book um, hmm. because it was very quick read. Um, "Mommy Dearest" is like twenty hours, but I'm glad my mom <laughs> died was only six hours.
0: There um, so you go. Yeah.
1: So. Uh, both were great and you know i'm glad that you know both had the chance to write a book about this and get it out cathartically you know mm-hmm. so i don't know yeah that's that's that uh, <laughs> Watch, Mommy Dearest. October's coming around the corner, so it's good, <laughs> good time for a horror movie. It is, you know? and
0: that that one will scare the pants off of you. Seriously, yeah. This is the different aspect of Betty Date or of Joan Crawford. Sorry, that Tia was talking about <laughs> her feud with Betty Davis, her rivalry. It is one of the most legendary rivalries in Hollywood to this day. Mm -hmm. And their feud did span about four decades. Both actresses took that feud with each other to their graves. Which, Mm. you know, (laughs) yeah, for me, I would not be okay with that. But, you know, maybe you can't avoid it. Slash. Yeah. It just happens sometimes. I, I'm not sure, but.
1: <laughs> I mean, sometimes holding a grudge feels really nice, though. Where <laughs> you're just like, no, I'm not going to forgive you
0: yeah. for that.
1: You know? Yeah. Um, I feel like yeah. all my grudges that I have are justified. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't need to like everyone.
0: True. <laughs> really? You know? I have said as yeah. much before myself, so. Yeah. I, hey, I need to like everyone.
1: So, you know, if you think I don't like you, feel free <laughs> to ask me, um, and I'll let you know. <laughs> so, there you go. There you go. Anyone there who's you. listening who thinks I might be holding a grudge <laughs> against them, maybe I am. I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe you... Uh, <laughs> never mind. All right. <laughs> so here's the
0: opportunity and is now folks. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, um <laughs> let's get back to uh you know, a little background. I won't, you know, try to go over the same stuff about Joan at least as Tia has gone through because, you know, um she definitely has done more extensive research than I had, but mm-hmm. just to get the background on Joan Crawford, I definitely knew who Joan Crawford was, I mean, a top Hollywood actor, actress. Um, and yes, her name was Lu- Lucille Fay Um, So interesting that she landed on Joan Crawford. She was a huge movie star obviously, and signed to MGM, as Tia said, in 1925. So um, a couple of the movies that she was known for at the time um, and she wasn't she was not per se starring in these movies, but they were going to be you know, it was going to be good for her that, that these movies. Grand Hotel, in 1932 with Greta Garbo and John and Lionel Barrymore. But she was very upset at the time that she had no scenes with the quote divine Greta Garbo. So I guess, you know, she just acted amongst the other actors but not Greta Garbo. Well, that year Grand Hotel would win the Academy Award for Best Picture. Then the women came in 1939, and she starred in this opposite her then professional nemesis, who was Norma Hmm. Shearer. In June of, June 29th of 1943, Joan's contract with MGM is mutually terminated. So she was done with it at that point. Um, But, like Tia said, she turned right around on July 1st, 1943, and she signed with Warner Brothers. Well, who was working with Warner Brothers at the time? But Betty Davis.
1: Betty fucking
0: Davis. (laughs) Yep. Bringing us to our next player in this humongous drama. Honestly, mm-hmm. it's so much drama that I didn't, I wrote, you know, cause I'm still writing all my research. That's how I do it. But I wrote more pages than I thought I would. Cause I was like, oh my God, this is just <laughs> too much. But, um, so Betty Davis was known as Ruth Elizabeth, quote, Betty Davis. Mm-hmm. Um, she was born April 5th, 1908. And she would pass away decades later in 1988. Um, But we'll get to that later. She was also a huge actress in Hollywood. And if you could compare the two, which we shouldn't compare the two, especially not even knowing what the rivalry was, but we can compare them for a brief moment. We'll say that Mm -hmm. Betty was more of the actor, I guess, if you'll say, stage actor, I guess. Um, And Joan was the movie star. She was the big it person, Mm -hmm. you know. She was the face you saw splashed across the screen, which Betty, that would happen for her too, but for reasons other than... The reasons that she wanted mm-hmm. <laughs> i'll try to get into that but um but yeah betty davis was huge i mean <laughs> i'll just mention something later but um so she would go on betty davis would go on to win two academy awards and she was also the first actress to ever receive 10 nominations for Best Actress in her category, yeah. Um, And she moved to Hollywood in 1930. So obviously, based on the dates of these ladies, um, Joan was already established in Hollywood at that point. Um, Betty was new to Hollywood, Um, but they had so many similarities. I'll get into their similarities in a moment, but. Um, I'm just trying to give some background right now on Betty Davis. Um, in 1935, she was in a movie called Dangerous, and that was going to be her first Best Actress nomination, and she won in the category that year. Um, in 1938, she was in a movie called Jezebel. That was going to be her second Academy Award uh, nomination. She also won for Best Actress. In 1950, she was in a movie called All About Eve. That was another Oscar nomination for her. Um, But she didn't win that year. She won at the Cannes Film Festival. She won the award for Best Actress, but not here in the United States. Mm. And her last Oscar nomination was going to be for Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, of course, that Tia already mentioned in 1962. Um, a couple other factoids, quick factoids about her. She was the first female president of the Academy of Motion and Picture Arts and Sciences. Oh wow, and she, yeah, it's pretty big, right? She you guys was also don't know
1: the, who that is, they make the Academy Awards. Yep.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yep. You make she them. was <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> she was also the first woman to receive the Lifetime Achievement Award from the American Film Institute, otherwise known as AFI. Oh wow. Yeah. And in nineteen ninety-nine. Betty Davis was placed second behind, none other than Katherine Hepburn, on American Film Institute's list of the greatest female stars of classical Hollywood cinema era. So oh, wow. that's pretty big. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and this is a fact that should really um, speak to our Hollywood's haunted crowd in 1926, an 18-year-old Betty Davis saw a production, and I think Tia might remember this, of Henrik Ibsen's The Wild Duck with Blanche Yurka and Peg and Twistle.
1: Oh, wow.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, I and do remember this. Yeah, we yeah. About that. Oh,
1: okay. Right?
0: And yeah. Betty, she, she recalled the reason I wanted to go into theater was because of an actress named Peg Entwistle. Wow! So you see, Peg, you had a fan in Betty Davis, but I digress mm-hmm. from that point. <laughs> so, but that's the reason that she she said that she wanted to be an actress. So, um, pretty big. Wow! Um, yeah. Um, let's move on. That's a little bit of background and, you know, Tia gave you most of the background on being proffered. So let's get into what you really want to know about the origins of the rivalry. Well, I took most of my information from the rivalry origins, the exact timeline, because they lay it out for you so nicely from Harper's Bazaar, the magazine, but. It's an online article, HarpersBazaar.com. Um, they lay out the entire timeline of the whole of the whole um, rivalry. So uh, let's just get to it. In 1933, um, Davis's film, Betty Davis's film, "Ex Lady," would be the first to feature her name above the title. So this was going to be Warner Brothers publicity campaign to kind of blow up Betty Davis's star. And, you know, kind of she was already, um, you know, kind of making a, a name for herself. But this was going to be more of an effort to do that. Well, right when that happened, Joan Crawford just happened to announce the same day that she was going to be divorcing her first husband, who was Douglas Fairbanks Jr. So of course, that was a huge deal. You can um, (laughs) for, you know, our modern listeners, that would be like, um, I guess, uh, Jennifer Lopez and Ben Affleck breaking up again. You know, (laughs) they're married again now, they're breaking up again. So um, anyway, the papers I want to know
1: who uh Douglas Fairbanks Jr is uh oh yeah we have go ahead an episode on his ghost yes uh boy, I can't tell you what number episode that is so
0: good luck <laughs> good luck finding that one good luck um so <laughs> the rivalry you know started supposedly because the papers were covering Joan, exclusively, mm-hmm. and all the drama from the fallout of the relationship, and not bet. So, mm-hmm. Ex-Lady, her movie, Betty Davis's movie, was dropped from the theaters after only a week due to poor ticket sales. Oh, wow. Yes, because she only received a small blurb about the movie, and everything oh. else was... Joan Crawford and Douglas Fairbanks Jr. are divorcing. So mm. it's said that out of that, the feud was born. Bum, bum, bum. <laughs> yes. Then in 1935, um, Joan marries actor, and I think I'm going to pronounce this wrong. I'm trying to pronounce it right. Franchot, Tone. I think it's French. Um, and he was her, or I'm sorry, he was Betty Davis's co-star in the movie Dangerous. So Crawford and Tone announced their engagement during the filming of Dangerous while Betty Davis was still making the movie and the, the part that was so hard for Betty Davis to accept, other than the fact that she had to interact with Joan Crawford, was that she was in love with Francho Tone. Oh, no. um, so, yeah, she was she even admitted in many interviews her jealousy during this time period that Joan decided to get together with him. Um, she really felt that Joan Crawford stole him from her.
2: Mm-hmm. So
0: whether uh, Tone's feelings toward Betty Davis were the same, who knows? But um, we definitely know that he was feeling something for Joan Crawford, but she was, you know, maybe being sneaky at the same time, who knows? So it's kind of... Um, question mark but Mm -hmm. that added fuel to the fire another thing that added fuel to the fire was in 1936 so a year later Betty Davis's Oscar came through she won for the film Dangerous as best actress Um, but at the time you know well some would say that fashion is not important in the Oscars but Others would definitely, (laughs) 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 I was just going to say others would definitely disagree. Mm -hmm. I think people not in the know perhaps, but, Mm -hmm. um, so that year Betty or yeah, Betty Davis won for dangerous and she wore a plain Navy dress. It was actually an old costume by accounts. Mm -hmm. Um, she wasn't thinking she'd win. I don't know. But then again, I don't kind of buy that because now knowing what I know about Betty, her ego is humongous. So, mm. um, and she would be the first person to say that. So anyway, but regardless of that, she wore a plain Navy dress. She didn't think she'd win. And then because um Franchotone and uh, Joan Crawford were together at that time, You know, Mm -hmm. he felt that she was being rude to Betty Davis, and he recognized that, and he actually called her out on it. And Mm -hmm. when he called her out on it, um, Joan Crawford apparently had a sneer on her face, and she called out to Betty Davis, Dear Betty, what a lovely frock. (laughs) So, oh, just dissing her dress oh, no. to her face and telling her, you know, oh, oh you look God. simple, you look, you know, whatever, you definitely don't deserve to win this award. So, yeah, um, yeah kind of a big diss. Um, in 1943, Joan uh, moved to Warner Brothers. And that was, you know, what we were talking about before um, in the split when she left MGM. But when she moved to Warner Brothers, she demanded the dressing room adjacent to Betty Davis. uh, Apparently. And at this point, Betty Davis had been at Warner Brothers for about a decade now. Um, But Joan, I mean, Who knows exactly what her intentions were? It's kind of, you know, could be a few different reasons, but she sent gifts and flowers to Betty to try to win her over. And Betty just refused everything. She sent all of them back, everything. She was not trying to have it. Um, And at that point, it was kind of a question as to you know, why really she was doing this. Well, I'm going to get to kind of more about it in a moment. But even at that point, um, there was a speculation that it was because Joan had some kind of um, maybe sexual obsession with Mm. Betty Davis and that, that was kind of the reason why she might have been sending her all of these things. And she had even said things, she had said things kind of loosely, you know,
1: that was in the book too, that like Joan Crawford had this repressed, uh, sexual desires towards women. And she would kind of, uh, take it out on a few of her servants. Right. She, like, uh, one of them in particular ended up quitting because uh, Joan had made drunken advances towards her.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: yeah, yeah, I was like that was definitely a thing
0: mm-hmm. in the book. yeah, yeah, no, for sure. And it, it's gonna like so. This was 1943 by mm-hmm. um, let's see, math, math, math. By seven years later, it was kind of gonna not even be a question anymore maybe so
2: mm-hmm.
0: um okay so we're at 1943 though at 1945 freddie davis was offered the lead role in the film noir mildred pierce but she turned it down um i believe she was pregnant at the time and that was her reason namely for mm-hmm. turning it down but um Joan Crawford, of course, snags the role after Betty Davis, you know, refuses it. And she wins her first and only Oscar. And she accepts the Oscar from her bed. Um, wow. Yeah, quite unusual. But you can see the picture even Mm -hmm. um, if you Google it. But um, so, yeah, Mildred Pierce, um, for anyone out there. I have not seen the version, (laughs) shockingly enough, with Joan Crawford, I should watch that version, Um, Mm. but I've seen the version that was filmed um, much, much later with um, Kate Winslet and uh, it was really good. It was a very depressing piece from what I remember, but of course, um, you know, it was probably great for the time, so. Check it out mm-hmm. if you're interested. But um, a couple years later, in 1947, again, Joan Crawford would take a role from Betty Davis. And she took the lead role that was actually written for Betty Davis specifically um, in the crime drama Possessed. So that was going to earn Joan another Oscar nomination. She didn't win that year, but she still got nominated. So at this point, you know, we're talking in general terms about Betty Davis being the true actress who appreciates her craft and she's very good at what she does. And we're talking about Joan Crawford being this big movie star who maybe doesn't care about acting so much, but... You know, she's kind of portraying being an actor, but she's still winning the Oscar and getting an Oscar nomination. So Mm -hmm. was she really a bad actor? I don't know. Kind of subjective, maybe. Mm -hmm. Um, So remember that controversy? I can't even talk anymore. (laughs) Remember that controversy um, that was happening um, in 1943? Well, in 1950, that would turn up a notch as there was a women-in-prison drama called Caged, and that was intended by Warner Brothers to be a joint Crawford-Betty Davis vehicle, but Betty Davis refuses to sign on to do, quote, a dyke movie. Mm. So Crawford, as we were talking about a bit before, um, has admitted to having relationships with both men and women. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's not, you know, something that's not, you know, something that's not, uh, it's it's who she is, right? (laughs) But Betty Davis is not into it at all. Um, Hmm. And because of her ego, um, she knows that on some level that, you know, and this is kind of speculation, kind of hearsay, but according to those who knew her and and what was going on at the time, um, she thinks because, you know, of how, how she is, she's like, well, yeah, well, Joan's into me, so... I'm going to use this against her type of thing, Mm -hmm. um, was kind Mm -hmm. of it, you know? So, um, then in 1952, and this is kind of, um, I would say the ultimate veiled insult. It wasn't very veiled. I mean, it was pretty clear what the insult was, but nonetheless, In 1952, Betty Davis plays Joan Crawford on screen in a movie called The Star. And it was written, (laughs) yeah, it was written by one of Joan Crawford's close friends who supposedly had a falling out with her. And Mm -hmm. so she was ready to just kind of do an expose type of thing. Um, So the character in The Star. Is the character of a washed-up actress clinging desperately to be fit to her fading star power. So they yeah, they said, of course, Betty Davis had no problem at all quickly signing on (laughs) to take the role. Oh no. (laughs) Yeah. So I mean, if you can just imagine, you know, watching a representation of yourself played out by somebody that you don't even like. Um, yeah. That's probably the worst thing ever. <laughs> so yeah, that was, that was horrible. Um, and then 10 years later, as you were talking about before, and as I'll get into a little bit more in 1962. Mm. Um, so of course there was, you know, at least a 10 year period there where kind of nothing was happening more or less. But apparently these ladies still had a lot to go on um, because in 1962, Joan Crawford persuaded Betty Davis to sign onto whatever happened to baby Jane. And that for those who don't know it is a psychological horror story about a crippled former actress, played by Joan Crawford, who is terrorized by her deranged sister, played by Betty Davis. And this is all within their um, their dilapidated Hollywood home.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So was it a success? Yes, the movie was definitely a success. Um, was it a comeback? for both of these actresses who were at that point in their 50s, yeah, it was definitely a comeback. But was mm-hmm. it also a public document of their real-life rivalry? Most definitely oh, it yeah. was that. And did they intend it that way? No, of course. I am I mean, who would... I don't know. I mean, you'd have to be really meta to, to, to try and do something like that and also know that you're doing it at the same time. I don't think that they knew that. They just Mm -hmm. were doing it. They wanted to both have a vehicle that they could, you know, perform in. And it just so happened that it, you know, it exposed and highlighted the very worst parts of their relationship (laughs) in in a true way. So, um, well, it's said that um, Betty Davis agreed only to be in the film because of the fact that two facts. Number one, that she played the title role of Jane, of course,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and that number two, the director, um, he was not sleeping with Joan Crawford. Um, yeah. <laughs> And she said, and I quote, it wasn't that I cared about his private life or hers either. I didn't want him favoring her with more close-ups. So that's what Betty Davis said was her criteria, yeah, for signing on to do the film.
1: You know, what's most important here. Of
0: course. You know. (laughs) This is Hollywood drama at its worst and these are older Hollywood stars. So mm. be careful of thinking about anyone who's older in too much of a precious way. We're all just people. Yeah. We all yeah. make choices at the end of the day. so oh, yeah no
1: I'm yeah. I'm 34 and still super petty so
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah well, I mean
1: it's
0: no, I mean it's hey. Um, so there were definitely some antics on the set. Which, if any of you out there have ever watched Feud, which is the mm-hmm. dramatiz, Ugh, I can't speak drama, dramatized, yeah, dra- yeah. I want to add an extra syllable. It's the dramatized version of um of this whole thing that I'm I'm telling you about the Joan Crawford Betty Davis rivalry. Um, you will know that there were a lot of antics on set, and this is kind of what people who know about it Mm. could, you know, identify with the most about knowing anyway. Um, And it was kind of, (laughs) I had even watched the series myself, but I had to refresh my memory. And Mm. yeah, some of these antics, yeah, sure, they're not completely verified like I should say, just about the quotes, which are not completely verified, but still, if anything even close to this happened, yeah, it's probably pretty bad. <laughs> um, so the antics on the set, Tia already mentioned that Joan Crawford, uh, her, fir- her fourth husband was Alfred Steele, and he was a Pepsi executive, so... When he died, um, he died shortly before they started to film Baby Jane. Um, So she was already on the Pepsi board of directors at the time. Well, just to fuck with her, Betty Davis installed a Coke machine into her dressing room. Oh, shit. Purely out of fight, <laughs> <spite>. yes. <laughs> so, Petty with a capital P. Oh
1: yeah, big time. Uh,
0: You know, I mean, it's a small thing, but like, okay. Um, (laughs) The next thing, this was honestly more safety driven and I can completely get behind this. However, despite all that, Joan Crawford requested a body double um, for Betty Davis in the fight scenes, because mm-hmm. she was worried that Betty Davis might actually enforce physical harm upon her. Well, yeah. she might, yeah. yeah, right? You could believe that right. Believe <laughs> so <laughs> So it was probably not a bad request because, unfortunately, on one of the scenes that required certain close-ups, The body double could not be used. Therefore, the two did the scene together, and Betty Davis herself allegedly hit Joan Crawford hard in the head. And the severity of the blow is what is being disputed because some people that witnessed it say that... um, She put Joan Crawford in stitches, but other people say, or I'm sorry, not other people. (laughs) Betty Davis, of course, says that she, quote, barely touched her. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, that alone to me sounds like a damn lie right there. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Barely touched her? No, you probably fucked her up.
1: Yeah, that's... (laughs) Like, that's the way to lie.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, so, so she should have been frightened, you know? Um, but uh, apparently after that incident, another scene that the two of them had to do during this movie and you cannot, after hearing this stuff, I mean, you cannot honestly believe that these two same women were in the same film together, but like, you know here we go so yeah. after that to retaliate supposedly um Joan Crawford apparently put rocks into her pockets of the costume to make her body heavier for Betty Davis to drag her body across the floor which is the Jeez. scene what the scene required for yeah some people say that it was a um a professional a professional weightlifter's body belt that she put mm. around herself. Uh, but most people just say it was rocks. But either way, you know, mm. she's trying to drag her body across the room for this scene. And I guess in other reports I read, it was said that um, Joan Crawford had the knowledge that Betty Davis might have had a bad back. So of course you and I, Tia, know that as actors, when you're in a scene, we're acting, you're not going to try to make it hard for the other person, right? (laughs) You know, if you're playing somebody who's dragging me across the floor by my hair, I'm not actually going to, you're not actually going to pull my hair. I'm going to lean into it and pretend like you're pulling my hair. But, you know, in this case, no, she knew Betty Davis had a bad back, allegedly, and she wanted her to suffer after Mm -hmm. the other incident. So (laughs) if you can just imagine. And then they said, of course, that they did take after take and most of the takes were ruined uh, due to this fact. So um, and then to add you know, maybe the final insult to injury Um, in 1963, which of course was one year after baby Jane was released. Mm -hmm. Betty gets an Oscar nomination. And Joan does not, but Mm. because she doesn't get an Oscar nomination, (laughs) Joan gets deviously sneaky and decides to do something about it in a very real way that will hurt Betty very much what Mm -hmm. Joan decides to do when she doesn't get that Oscar nomination is she decides to write to all of the other um, nominees that were in that category so the other best actresses and um Mm -hmm and they were on the East Coast. So she says, you know, if you can't make it to the award ceremony, I'll accept the award in your place. And Anne Bancroft Bancroft decides to accept that. So um, Anne Bancroft actually wins who, you know, for those out there who might not know her name, um, she is most famous for her role as Mrs. Robinson um, in uh, the film with Dustin Hoffman. Now, what was it called? The Graduate. <laughs> the Graduate. Yeah, thank you. I had a brain fart for a minute. Um, but Anne Bancroft wins the Oscar for Best Actress. So, yeah, she tells Joan in writing, she tells Joan Crawford, yeah, that's fine. You can accept my Oscar. I'm not going to be at the ceremony because she's on the yeah. East Coast. She doesn't want to go back to the West Coast. So, um, <laughs> so the category gets called Best Actress. Of course, then all the nominees' names are up. But then when Anne Bancroft gets called, then Betty Davis has to watch Joan Crawford walk up to the stage and accept the Academy Award. And, of course, shoot her probably a couple of sly looks (laughs) at the very least, even though she didn't win anything, she's accepting on the behalf of somebody else. Did she still manage to steal the thunder from her that day? Yeah, I think so. (laughs) So, um, it's also said that, um, Joan Crawford was campaigning very hard against, um, Betty Davis to win the Oscar that year. So she was kind of sending out a lot of bad vibes about her supposedly. Um, and I can believe it after pulling a stunt like that. I mean, it does seem like a stunt to me, so. Oh yeah. You know, I mean, why would you do that and then look somebody in the eye and be like, oh yeah, I did that to you, you know? So, uh, um, it carries on. In 1964, Joan uh, decides to leave the film that was kind of going to be a "quote unquote" sequel film to whatever happened to Baby Jane, um, and that film was going. That film was called because it was made. Excuse me, it was called "Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte." Um, And the same director from Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, uh, Aldrich. Um, But when that was happening, Joan Crawford, although she initially said she would do it and kind of signed on and even began doing a little work, she bowed out. She was saying that she was too ill. And then she was replaced by um, Olivia de Havilland, which if anybody out there has watched Feud or Gone with the Wind, you know, Olivia de Havilland was um, Miss Melanie in Gone with the Wind, but I also didn't know that kind of an interesting side note, Olivia de Havilland was good friends with Betty Davis, and Olivia de Havilland actually had a lifelong feud with her own sister, Joan Fontaine. Um, So if you're interested in that, look into that, because it it actually is really interesting. And Olivia de Havilland just passed recently, um, I think a couple years ago, and she actually lived to be 104. Um, And she did not like her portrayal in the Ryan Murphy feud uh, anthology. No, she actually she took it to the court, too. She wanted it, Um, yeah, she took it all the way through the legal system, saying that her image was being used, you know, inappropriately and unfairly, but she was a public figure at that point, Um, so it went all the way to the Supreme Court in 2019, Supreme Court threw it out, saying, no, you know, this is not, this is not a thing, Olivia, (laughs) but um, just a, Uh, interesting sidebar, I thought. But um, So finally, in 1977, Joan Crawford would pass away, as Tia had already mentioned. Uh, May 10th, I believe it was, right? Yeah, May 10th, 1977. Mm -hmm. Well, apparently, Betty Davis chose to take that moment. And this is, like I said, most of these quotes are hearsay, they have not been verified, so they may or may not be true, but it's said that when Joan Crawford died, Betty Davis chose that as a moment to take one last dig on Joan after her death, and she said, quote, You should never say bad things about the dead. You should only say good. Joan Crawford is dead. Good. (laughs) Good. wow yeah so i mean if somebody made that up like i guess props to them for that being a totally savage horrible thing to say about somebody but like Mm -hmm. perhaps you really did say that and we we don't know okay wait i have to read you guys a few more just because i thought it was i couldn't write them all down because i was like well Mm -hmm. This is too much, but, um, these ladies, they threw about quite the, quite the insults about each other. Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and this is from bustle.com. Joan Crawford quotes about Betty Davis are savage. Um, and you could say the reverse too. I mean, so let's see, I'm going to find some of the, some of the ones that are really crazy. Um, <laughs> let's see. Well, one of one of the ones who actors will, you know, kind of identify with, I think. Um, so, on the release of whatever happened to Baby Jane, according to the the Guardian publication, um, she said, "Tomorrow, we're going to do that goddamn beach scene, my big scene, but just watch." She'll find a way to steal it. She always does when you play crazy ladies, you always walk away with the honors. Wow um, yeah, let's see. Wait, there's some better ones. Um, oh, I love this one. If she really said this, like, oh my God, okay, so this is from um, well, Joan Crawford again, and she said, "Bet is a survivor. She survived herself." <laughs> Wow. Yeah. Um, wait, there's... Oh, this is probably one of the worst ones. Okay, so remember I told you about the film Star, where Betty Davis was suppo- supposedly playing a version of Joan Crawford? Um, this is what she had to say. Of course I heard she was supposed to be playing me, but I didn't believe it. Did you see the picture? It couldn't possibly be me. Bet looks so old. And dreadfully overweight. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs>
2: God.
0: Savage. Um, wait, let's see. Okay, let's see, let's see. Oh, my God. They say so many bad things about each other. It's, like, hard to, like, <laughs> go through them all. Um, wait, wait, wait. Let's see. Uh Uh, Well, this is about Baby Jane and still from Joan Crawford. Oh, I love competition. I really think that competition is one of the great challenges of life and we must have challenges. Otherwise, we don't grow. I think with Betty Davis in Baby Jane was one of the greatest challenges I've ever had. I mean, I guess it's not really a savage burn, but it did speak to the fact that, you know, She did, and that's the thing about these two. They did allegedly respect each other as actors. Um, Even though I think Betty felt more full of herself, definitely, than Joan Crawford. But at the same time, you know, they said these horrible things about each other. So, okay, wait. And now I just have to give you the other side. That was from Betty. So then there's let's see there's the ones from um um i have always felt her greatest performance is crawford being crawford uh let's see um <laughs> she oh no that's joan crawford sorry oh my god betty davis i wouldn't piss on joan crawford if she were on fire oh no <laughs> <laughs> oh no! Yeah. Um, okay, I already read you, read you the quote about her being dead. Oh yeah, this is another really biting one. She, Joan Crawford, has slept with every male star at MGM except Lassie. Oh, <laughs> oh my god. Joan always cries a lot. Her tear ducts must be very close to her bladder. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, here. this is a... <laughs> Okay. So I didn't mention also that Betty Davis, um, another really positive thing she did when the war was going on, or after World War II, I should say, So 1944, MGM, she starts this thing called the Hollywood Canteen, or she's a part of it at the start. And they're entertaining, you know, officers that have come back from the war and such. But anyway, she says, why am I so good at playing bitches? I think it's because I'm not a bitch. Maybe that's why Joan Crawford always plays ladies. (laughs) Oh. Yeah. So those are just, those are some of the biting ones anyway from Buddy Davis. So, um, and you know, it's, it's a shame because both of these ladies, like I said, went to their graves carrying this rivalry on, um, Maybe it could have been resolved, but I don't think either party was willing. And Betty Davis, um, you said that Joan Crawford died of a, a heart attack, right, Tia? Yes. Okay, yes. so Betty Davis actually died of breast cancer. But she, it turned, from what I read, it turned um, very bad for her. Like, she was just beyond the breast cancer Um It was just a lot of negativity that kind of enveloped her in her last days. And, like, she just cursed Joan Crawford to the end. I mean, she was giving interviews in... She died in 1987, Betty Davis. She was giving interviews until the day she died about how upset and bitter she was about Joan Crawford. I mean, Jesus Christ, can you carry it that long? Like, I, I don't know. like So... That's all I gotta say. I mean, I don't know, I wasn't there, I'm not those people, but um, both of the ladies, I will end on their similarities. So both of them started their careers on Broadway in New York City before they moved out to Hollywood. Um, both of them were married four times. They both had roughly amount around the same amount of children you know, even though Joan Crawford's weren't natural born, any of them. Mm-hmm. Um, but they both also had daughters who wrote controversial tell all childhood memoirs about them. Um, oh, wow! Yeah. And I that was something I didn't know. I mean, of course, I knew about Mommy yeah. Dearest with Christina and Joan Crawford, but I didn't know about um, Betty Davis. So for Betty Davis, her daughter, B.D. Hyman, uh, Barbara Davis Hyman, she wrote a book called My Mother's Keeper in 1985. Mm -hmm. And that was about, you know, um, I haven't read it, but it was supposedly about how um, her relationship with her mother, she was also alcoholic and um, abusive. Mm -hmm. But um, I guess a lot of people don't really, wherein whereas a lot of people are um, more inclined to agree with Mommy Dearest and what happened to Christina, I guess it's not the same for the, um, mm-hmm. the book about, um, you know, Betty Davis. So, I mean, who's to say? But it still is kind of weird that they had, like, very similar experiences in that way. So... Um, but yeah, that's you know most of what I have to say about uh Betty Davis and Joan Crawford rivalry. And yeah, if you want to watch it dramatized heavily, <laughs> you can watch Feud by Ryan Murphy from 2017. Good series, really, two great actresses in that. But, um, mm-hmm. as you can see, there's a lot of you know discrepancy in what actually happened over the years so <laughs> who's yeah. to say who's to say in the end but I mean to read these kind of quotes that are just like so outrageous it's like wow did somebody really say this <laughs> yeah. but maybe they did so yeah I well
1: awesome yeah. that was a whole thing. <laughs> there was a lot of, a lot of, lot of uh, yeah, wow. <laughs> I hope, well, I know I'm petty, but I hope I'm never in a rivalry that's that um, intense. Right? Know, I mean,
0: do you want to be going to your life? grave being like, it was her fault. It was still her Because that's like basically... Like when, from what I read, and I'm not judging, I'm just saying like, it seems like she definitely was obsessed on this tip, you know, because every interview she gave, it didn't matter who it was. Every interview she gave, she was denouncing Joan Crawford, who at that point in the 80s had been dead for at least 10 plus years. Like, Mm -hmm. it's just, I mean, I'm not judging, but like, oh my God, it seems intense, you know? that's all I don't know there's people that um, in my life I won't speak to right now but like yeah sure I could hold a grudge but like I just don't I don't want to deal with all that you know like, <coughs> I just don't like but it's understandable yeah. <laughs> it's understandable but um, yeah Hollywood I don't know That's crazy. (laughs) What can you say in Hollywood? Everything is. crazy.
1: (laughs) I think that's the perfect way to end the episode.
0: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs)
1: Hollywood is crazy. It's kind of crazy.
0: We love it still, but it's crazy. Yeah,
1: we do. I mean, if it wasn't crazy, we wouldn't have much to talk about. No podcast.
0: Right. What about Peg Entwistle? Oh, my God. Betty Davis saying that was yeah. the reason why she wanted to become an actor. Oh, it yeah, makes me so sad. Incredible. It's so bittersweet. I mean, look at... Yeah. Oh, and I was going to name one more thing. This is, you know, more lighthearted. So taking away mm. from Pagan Twistle, who definitely needs to be respected and revered. But um, mm. <laughs> I was thinking about it. And I was like, oh, my gosh. Why... Okay, Betty Davis, Betty Davis. Then so I was thinking, oh, wow, she even got mentioned in Madonna's Vogue. But guess who didn't? Joan Crawford. <laughs> oh. <laughs> right? Like I was going through all of the lyrics. And I was like, um, you know, all the lyrics, and uh, there was no Joan Crawford. And I was just like, oh, damn. Okay. Well, I guess Madonna was not a Joan Crawford fan. (laughs) Yeah. Or is not. (laughs) Wow. But, you know, she named all of her favorite stars. So, I don't know. I just feel like now that I read about all of this stuff, I didn't know as much in depth about the rivalry. I kind of Mm want to watch these films and see for myself. Um, you know, was she not that good of an actress or whatever? Because honestly, the way I think about her is that campy portrayal that you said of Faye Dunaway in uh, Mommy mm, Dearest. Yeah. And of course, like you said, that's not really accurate at all. It's just an interpretation. Yeah. And it's a, it's a monstrous interpretation. So, yeah. you know, I think she did great at that. I mean, she's t- totally scary, right? But... <laughs> Mm-hmm. But is I
1: mean, it acting? Uh oh, is it acting, yeah. Yeah. Oh, is um, it accurate I've definitely, even. definitely uh, yeah. seen whatever happened to Baby Jane. But that's probably I'm such a bad Hollywood podcaster because that's probably the only movie I've seen <laughs> of either of them. Aww. I'm trying to think what other Betty Davis movies I've seen. I've probably seen them.
0: Yeah, you after. probably have.
1: Yeah. He was in many, just,
0: many things. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I'm trying to think. Oh man, I gotta watch some old movies. <laughs> um, I was sad. Uh that because I love the Thin Man series. I was sad to hear about how much of a bitch Myrna Loy really is in real life, according to Christina Crawford. But oh, yeah. yeah, that hurt that hurt my feelings a little bit.
2: Yeah. Um, <laughs> <you> know, <laughs>
1: made me sad. But you know, you can never meet your heroes. I've met a few celebrities over the years who uh, made me sad to meet them because they were not nice people. So, you know, yeah, no, not to fun. name anybody in particular.
0: Yeah. yeah, yeah, no, it's it's true. Yeah, it's mm. just um, it's crazy to think that you know, I don't know, like I, I, well. It's a conversation for another time off of this podcast, but, uh, you know, it's just kind of, I don't know. I just never personally would want to carry that much Hmm. negativity, I guess, you know, I don't know who can say, but it just, it feels very heavy. That's all.
1: (laughs) I mean, I'm sure at a few points, it was actually fun for them oh do, yeah you know? and oh yeah they enjoyed the dramatics of it yeah you know uh as much as i'm sure the audience did as well right. but yeah yeah
0: i know like during all that stuff um when they were filming the actual movie i mean that sounds insane like that's mm-hmm. like if you could actually be witness to that um well, good luck. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's just like, oh, my God. Crazy. But, you know, I don't know. Um, it certainly makes for a good story, nonetheless. So. <laughs> yeah.
1: All right. So another episode in the bag. Um. But, yeah, thanks, everyone, for listening to another episode of Hollywood's Haunted, the podcast.